This is the Monday, April 25th, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, We're going to step through the Guardian of Forever and meet two founding fathers who were best friends, then enemies, then friends again. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the first and second vice presidents of the United States and the second and third presidents of the United States. Our guide on this journey is Daniel L. Malik, and his book is Agony and Eloquence, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and a World of Revolution. Dan grew up within walking distance of Peacefield, John and Abigail Adams' home up in Massachusetts, and he was also a member of the Quincy Historical Society in the Bay State. You may have seen his previous history work in places like North and South, or you may have caught his March 2016 op-ed in the Cleveland Plain Dealer about the upcoming election and how these two founding fathers should influence the way we look at politics. And if you'd like to check out that or his other work, hop over to his website, danielmalek.com. That name is spelled M-A-L-L-O-C-K. Well, now that we know a little bit about today's guest, let's travel back in time and meet John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, a relationship that was very much one of agony and eloquence. I'm joined on the line by Dan Malik, author of Agony and Eloquence, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and a World of Revolution. Thank you for taking the time to speak with the History Author Show. Dean, it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining me, and that was very nice of you to say. I must be doing something right. I just appreciate you coming on and talking about two giants here of the founding, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. I want to start where your book ends, and that's in the acknowledgement of Agony and Eloquence. You write, quote, Had I not undertaken this project, I would now be a different person. Lesser, I think. Thank you to John Adams and Thomas Jefferson for their example of forgiveness and patience, love and respect. Why do you think that this story of these two friends continues to impact us here? It's 200 years after their death, and we're still reading and enjoying it. I hope it does impact the reader in a similar way that it impacted me. When I started the research for the book, I had switched over from Civil War studies. I had published a few articles on the Battle of Franklin, Tennessee, 2008, 2009. I thought I need to get back to my roots. I'm from Quincy, Massachusetts originally, spent a lot of time around Quincy history. So I wanted to go back there, which was kind of difficult because here I am so far away and Nashville, but I did it anyway, and I return up there uh, frequently, as frequently as I can. So I started to reread 
closely the correspondence, which I hadn't read since I was in high school. And I was absolutely struck by the forgiveness of Jefferson and the forgiveness of Adams. Jefferson had done some terrible things to undermine Adams's presidency. Adams had done some terrible things to Jefferson in private that later became public, insulting negative statements. So there were all kinds of causes that breached their friendship. So the fact that they were able to come back together was really important to me. These two men who were so far apart politically, but united with some common ideas about the country, democracy, and the importance of the union. My own experience was I was fairly strong, conservative, very strong uh, at the time. I was struck by how negative the political environment was, the savage criticism against the president, the rigid views that people had, their inability to even give a speck of appreciation to the opposition. And I thought, this is just the dysfunctional politics that we have. And when I read some more biographies of Jefferson and more biographies of Adams and realized that these men were able to forgive one another, I thought, this is a model for our politics that no one knows about. No one's talked about it in this way. It's a fantastic story, really interesting and exciting, and such a core lesson for all of us in the democracy to have. And I wanted to bring it out into the culture and tell this incredible story. And that's why I wrote it. And if I hadn't done the research, if I hadn't written the book, I think I may have stayed this kind of rigidly thinking person that I had been, not in an extreme way, but not really as flexible as I think I should be. And I think I am now mainly on account of this book. And it just had a massive impact on me personally. So now that you've explained what we can learn from reading the book and from the examples of these two men that maybe none of us really want to learn, we're all a little bit stubborn. People are very divided, clearly. But Set the stage for us how close these two men really were. I mean, Adam says that this relationship with Jefferson is the closest of his life outside of the relationship with Abigail Adams, who people are likely familiar. They were very close, consulted with each other on all sorts of issues and bounced ideas back and forth. So how did these men grow so close? What was the history there that sets the stage for this falling away? They're both very strong patriotic Americans revolutionaries, served in the Continental Congress together, wrote the Declaration of Independence together with some help from Franklin and some others, mainly Jefferson writing the document. Later, they became diplomats in Europe together at the same time, Jefferson in Paris and Adams in London. Adams is the first minister to London. Jefferson's the minister to Paris. They kept a very strong correspondence with each other. They felt like they were close, even though they were so far away, London and Paris, but that was closer than the distance between Europe and the United States. So they felt like they were neighbors. When Jefferson's daughter traveled to France with her, uh, how do I say, uh, minder, helper, slave, Sally Hemings, who was 14 at the time, they landed in England and stayed with the Adamses for two weeks. Abigail fell in love with the daughter. And later on, when the daughter passed away at the age of 25, 
Abigail restarted or tried to restart a communication with Jefferson that had by then been in silence. But even during this period in France and London, Jefferson said to Adams in a letter, whenever I get your opinion, something I'm paraphrasing, I always consider if my opinion is in accord with yours. You know, I always judge my viewpoint in relation to Mr. Adams's viewpoint to determine if I'm on the right track. This approach from Jefferson didn't last very long <laughs> after that. And they really went their own separate ways based almost entirely upon their view of the French Revolution. This really breached their friendship and caused the rift that later was 10 years of silence. You write that their correspondence back and forth and their friendship, it defeats every attempt at thumbnail sketching. So I was wondering, as I read the book, how did you meet the challenge of not only painting a full picture here of their friendship in Agony and Eloquence, but of not retreading ground that's been covered a lot of times. I purposefully try to stay away from secondary source material as much as I could, unless I couldn't possibly ignore it. For example, David McCullough's excellent biography of Adams, which then became the movie, I read that when it first came out. I didn't see the HBO series, and I purposely did not reread it for this project. There was a book that was published by uh, a lady author in the 70s that covered this subject. I do not know to what extent because I didn't read it. I purposely didn't read it so I wouldn't be influenced by it. I stayed as close as I possibly could to their letters, documents, diaries, letters of friends, reports, documents from the Times as much as I possibly could to have a fresh viewpoint. And the core of the book is their correspondence. I really analyzed that in a very, very close way that I don't think has been done, to my knowledge, anytime recently. So to keep it fresh, I tried to stay away from others' interpretations of it unless I couldn't avoid it. Like, for example, Malone, Dumas Malone's huge Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Jefferson, multiple volumes, five volumes, Paige Smith's biography of Adams, some of which I didn't agree with. I didn't agree with everything that these folks said, but that's what history is all about. I've got my own opinion and my own viewpoint, and so did they. Well, look at you applying the lessons there that you were just talking about before. So now we know you really did learn as much from researching the book as we did from reading it, mulling over other people's opinions and not being, I guess they would say, close-minded. You look at the two of them and you sometimes want to knock their heads together and say, you know, or knock their wigs off, you know, hard, at least hard enough to knock the wigs off because they are a little stubborn. But then you get kind of to the end of their lives and you realize they are writing for history. They are realizing that this was so important and you, Hate to see friends break up. You wish you could step into the pages and get a Ben Franklin to get them together or at least avoid some of these unfortunate misunderstandings and problems. A lot of those figures like Ben Franklin, who you mentioned, have cameos in Agony and Eloquence. One of them is Thomas Paine. What role does he play early in setting them at loggerheads? Thomas Paine was a major influence on the morale of the Revolutionary Army. His essays were significantly contributory to positive morale in the Continental Army. He was a uh, national hero for his writings supporting the Patriot cause. He also served with General Green's staff in the Army and also served as a staff person 
in the Continental Congress. So huge contributions from him. When Paine published Rights of Man in Europe, it was sent along to Jefferson by, I believe, Madison, who received it from someone in Europe. Jefferson loved it. He loved it so much that he wrote a preface to the pamphlet, which later appeared in the American version of the pamphlet. He didn't tell the printer, you know, he passed it along to a printer and said, this needs to be printed and disseminated and passed along a note, which he said was not meant for publication. Hmm. Unfortunately for him, it was published and caused a storm of controversy when this very short preface introduction by the uh, Secretary of State was printed. And the implication of it was that he was dissatisfied with the national government, of which he was a major part. So people like Adams, who were in the political opposition, Federalists, and Jefferson is starting his own political party, the Democratic Republicans, they assumed, and correctly so, that they were being attacked without being named. Adams in particular felt that this preface was aimed at him and some of his writings. He was right. Jefferson never told him this. This was part of Jefferson's political strategy to challenge the Federalist Party, the Federalist leadership, undermine it and create his own power structure and base. He was very successful at it, but he paid a high price in that it started to crack his friendship with Adams. Adams was very patient about this, let it pass, but these things started to build over time. And finally, soon thereafter, it just cracked wide open and they stopped speaking. You do a good job of this in the book, and that's explaining the difference and the conflict between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, being Adams being a Federalist and Jefferson being a Democratic-Republican, as you said, when these parties are just in their very infancy. So briefly for people, explain what the difference was and what the major argument here was, because that'll bring us back to the French Revolution and their differing views of that. The Federalists believe in a strong central authority, strong federal government, standing army and navy. And more importantly, they believed in a leadership cadre, an elite of mainly educationally qualified people to lead the country. They didn't have the same concept of, quote, the people that Jeffersonians did and do, and that is such a popular concept for most Americans now. They distrusted the people as a mob. So, for example, when Adams's book on Davila, Discourses on Davila, came out, he was highly critical of democracy as dangerous because it, it allowed or tended towards mob rule. It gave too much authority to the people. And this was one of the big conflicts that he had with Jefferson. Jefferson, on the other hand, believed that the uh, authority should be decentralized that democracy was far more important than the structure of the government and that he didn't want a navy. After he came into the presidency, he started to defund it. He believed that just having ships on the ocean invited conflict and war. Anything to not participate in the standard way in the international arena that an average 
European type power would. The country was just starting, it was just getting organized, the institutions were being built. Nobody wanted to have a war, which was the issue about Adams' administration. He would do anything to avoid a war with France, if at all possible. That's where the subhead of your book, Agony and Eloquence, A World of Revolution, comes in. The French Revolution, they have very differing views of it. So this really tears the two of them apart, Adams and Jefferson. Then in the 1796 election, Adams wins and Jefferson comes in second place. So Jefferson's vice president. And there's all of these pressures brought to bear on them. And I thought it's kind of like two cats that you, when you have them, they may tolerate each other. They may even be friendly when they're in the house and things are okay. But you shove them in a cat carrier. And as a former veterinary technician, let me tell you, they're at their worst in the cat carrier. When they're going in under stressful conditions, they're going to fight in that carrier. What is the impact that it has when they're shoved into the presidency there? on this fight that they end up having in this estrangement for 10 years. Jefferson said that he was perfectly happy to take the secondary role as vice president. He didn't think it was the right time to be the president for him. I think he also understood that this growing conflict with France was going to put him in a very awkward position. And he didn't want to be in that position because he was such a Francophile, supported the French Revolution, even to the point of forgiving the violence of the Jacobins, you know, the mass guillotining and the cruelty, the intolerance of political discourse, of opposition, the rigidity that the revolution in France turned to and then finally imploded. This issue of France became a serious problem. Adams asked Jefferson if he would go to France as minister to try to broker some kind of an agreement and avoid war with France. Jefferson refused on constitutional grounds and said that I don't think the Constitution allows the vice president to do diplomatic mission. Adams concurred, and this was around the point where they kind of went their separate ways because Adams understood that Jefferson was just not on the same page with how he was trying to deal with France. You know, starting a military buildup as a threat to France, starting a naval buildup, and still talking diplomacy, a lot of it behind the scenes. Also sending a diplomatic mission, finally, of uh, three commissioners. I think then what happened, and this is speculation on my part, I think it's pretty substantive speculation because the circumstantial evidence is pretty strong, that Adams requested Jefferson to do a domestic diplomatic mission for the country. By that time, the United States and France had no diplomatic relations. The last French minister, ambassador to the United States, Adet, had left. Now the highest ranking French representative was a consul, French consul Latombe in Philadelphia, who happened to live about a mile away from Jefferson. So during the course of the growing conflict, when Adams would be speaking to Congress about France, about the difficulty of the relations between the two countries, his desire for peace with France, and yet his growing impatience and determination to defend the country, Jefferson was meeting with Latome at his office, Latome's office. These meetings occurred four times. In most books on the subject, these meetings are given one page, one paragraph, 
or in some cases, one sentence. I gave it a lot more than that because I think it's a very important subject, and I'll tell you why. We didn't know what was said at those meetings. They were quote-unquote secret. There was never any publication that they had occurred or any transcript of the meeting. We only found out what was said, and only in fragments, when Latome's official diplomatic correspondence was published by the American Historical Society early in the 20th century. And what was in those diplomatic dispatches was something that I found so shocking, so appalling, it really cracked my feelings about Jefferson in a way that the Sally Hemings scandal didn't. Jefferson, always, I've always been a big fan of him, his, just like I have been and am of uh, Adams, and still am of Jefferson. He was very critical of Adams in these talks with Latome. Very critical, insulting, even undermining of the president's policy towards France. I don't want to use the T word. Other writers have done so. But if these statements that he had made to the French consul, where he was basically telling the French government to do the opposite of what Adams wished, I don't see how he could have been elected president. I don't think it's possible. So to me, it was absolutely shocking. Jefferson had a different agenda to support France. He thought Adams's policy was tending towards creating a war. And his uh, agenda was, how do I build my party to unseat these people, undermine the administration, even though he's a part of it, and look towards the future so he or his fellow Republicans, smaller Democratic Republican, could take the first chair, which they were finally successful in doing. There's a lot of stuff in the book that I found very, very emotional to me because they really bothered me because they broke some concepts and feelings I had had about some people. I had to reassess my feelings about Jefferson in a way that made me very unhappy and uncomfortable. And I don't know if you had the same feeling when you read the book, but some people might find this shocking. I mean, this is not widely known material. So I I think adding this to the canon was an important part of this project for me. It's a very honest book in that sense, as far as looking at them, warts and all, Lincoln's phrase. Jefferson really does cross a massive line there, especially it's important to mention that there are no ambassadors at this point between the smaller powers. So that's why we were talking about ministers before and talking about the consul. That's how you would deal with them directly. And it's so important in an age when there's there's no shuttle diplomacy. There's no even telephones. There's no real mail service. So that really is a blight on Jefferson. He's just so headstrong. And then you consider this is his friend. And he's supposedly not only pledged to support his country, but to support his friend in office. And here he is undermining him when he told him he wouldn't do any anything of the sort to help, but he's going to go sort of conduct his own foreign policy. I have read a bunch of books on both Adams and Jefferson, and to still be able to pick it up, I'll be honest, I was a few pages in and I, I started to kind of relax a little. And I realized I was worried that I was going to read the same things again. And instead, I was learning new things. And your approach is exactly right by not going into the same old things that have already been written and try to take a completely new look at two men who keep fascinating us. My guest is Dan Malik, and the book is Agony and Eloquence, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and A World of Revolution. Remember to check out his website, danielmalik.com. The Nationals book review said, quote, 
On his deathbed, Adams, mentally surveying the ranks of the Founding Fathers, is consoled at least that, quote, Thomas Jefferson survives, not knowing that Jefferson had died just a few hours earlier that same day. The moment is a perfect capstone to a vigorously symmetrical relationship, and Malik has given that relationship a lively new history. Dan, three ideas jumped out at me from that review. Vigorous, lively, and new. I've read a bunch of books, and I've gone up to Peacefield and Quincy, Massachusetts to sort of research and just check out the Adamses. You like to rub the foot or the face of a statue there a little bit. I'm not too proud to admit. And so I've seen plenty of that. And you clearly, in writing Agony and Eloquence, you want to reach somebody like me, somebody like yourself, but you also want the book to be accessible to somebody who maybe never met Jefferson and Adams before in a book and don't know them other than from paintings or the occasional History Channel item they flip by when the History Channel used to do history, which would mean even that would be some time ago. So I was wondering, how do you go about that? I find that fascinating. When you're writing, when you are working with an editor, how do you make sure the book is serious history but still accessible to the new person? Wow. That's a, that's a great question, Dean. I think it's a matter of approach. What do I want to cover? I don't want to go over old material. I want to avoid that as much as I can. Other folks have done this. Many, much better than I, have covered the details of their lives. There are so many biographies. There's so many political analyses. But this discussion of their correspondence, which really kind of brings you right into their hearts, so to speak, what they are like as people, especially when they're out of office and they have their own projects and, you know, focusing on their family life and their homes and Jefferson on University of Virginia project and building his poplar forest and Adams trying to rescue his political reputation and defend himself constantly. You know, he gets this irascible reputation from these essays, which is mainly deserved, unfortunate. He just can't accept that he didn't get a second term. He said that keeping the peace between France and the United States was his greatest accomplishment of his life. And to be defeated by Jefferson, who he knew was undermining him, was not a cooperative vice president, really rankled him for years and years and years. So all this frustration makes it all the more remarkable that he just loves Jefferson. He adores the guy. He's brilliant. He's a scholar. He's erudite. He's well-read. He's a Renaissance man. It's amazing. Jefferson is like one of these one in a millennium, maybe, kind of people. He's like a Bach, a J.S. Bach kind of person. He's brilliant. Adams loves to be around him, loves to talk to him, loves to get his letters. He's honored by his friendship. I think Jefferson has some of that feeling going back to Adams as well. The question I think you asked was how do you have something fresh and new when these men have been covered so many times? It's like, well, how do you have a new book on Gettysburg? You know, I told a friend that I had this project about three years ago, and he poo-pooed it and said, oh, another biography of Adams. My response was I was really kind of upset yeah, no you know, that he wasn't pleased that I was doing, doing a book. He was just very cynical about it. I'm like, well, you know, there's a new biography of George Washington kind of every year. So people have a new view. Every generation has a new perspective and writes a different history. 
this kind of investigation of the correspondence hasn't been done in this way. I have an unusual background. I kind of grew up with John Adams. I hung out there as a kid. It's very kind of unusual, I think. So I have a special affinity for him and for Jefferson. It's very personal for me. For example, I was just devastated when I read that Latome dispatch where Jefferson was quoted insulting the president, undermining the policy, telling the French representative, knowing full well that he would communicate this back to the foreign minister of France, which he did, because then the French government acted exactly like Jefferson told them to, obstruct the diplomats, don't talk in good faith, just be patient because Adams is going to be a one-term president. I was devastated personally offended and upset you know it's like when some great hero you find out some horrible appalling thing about the person it just kind of cracks this marble facade or beautiful pedestal that you got them on and they start to fall off a little bit but it's not right to put these people on a pedestal they're just people who happen to be brilliant talented highly skilled and educated and in very important positions at the beginning of our history jefferson for example has to be the most conflicted important person in our history other than robert e lee the influence of these people on our history even now is so huge that having a new book about these folks is so important to get this story back out into the society and culture. I want people to know about Adams and Jefferson. If they don't like some of the things that they did, you know, Jefferson is so conflicted. This thing with Sally Hemings controversy is so troubling. Now this stuff with Latome is very problematic. There are other things that he did. Same with Adams. These are very complex, imperfect people, which makes them all the more, in my view, interesting. They're not men. They're real people who did great things, but also failed sometimes. It reminds us to try to stand up to our own ideals, too. You have one chapter, and you title it using Jefferson's very high-sounding quote, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. In the meantime, he's not acting at all like he's a Federalist and a Republican. He's undermining the president and really the Constitution that he's sworn to uphold. So that's such a hard thing to wrap your brain around. And then you say, how many of those things do we do every day in our lives? Uh, for instance, I was on a little bit of a cat tear there. People used to come in and they would say, oh, I didn't bother to give the antibiotic to my pet. And so the abscess has gotten worse. And other technicians or veterinarians would get very frustrated. And so would I. But they'd say, how could they do that to their poor dog? And I would say, look how they treat their own children or look how they treat themselves. I and mean, we all don't take the antibiotics. I mean, it's not exactly the same as a moral conundrum, but it's just that we don't ever, all of us, do the right thing all the time. And Adams had one of those things that I think people thought about for a long time where he snubs Jefferson's inauguration. And because we read so many of these high-minded phrases by Jefferson, I think for a long time, people were on Jefferson's side with that. They thought Adams was very petty and that that was terrible. What do you think of that with John Adams? What new light can you shed on that? Why does he make that choice not to attend the inauguration? Adams was so angry and so frustrated that he was leaving office. He thought for sure he'd be reelected because of the great success 
of having avoided war with France, a war that nobody in the United States thought that we could win. No one wanted it. Even France didn't want it, even though they were doing brinksmanship the entire four years of Adams's presidency. You wouldn't get the impression that they didn't want war. They just wanted everything right up till war, but nobody wanted an actual war. So Adams was so frustrated having lost and returned to Quincy. Not that he was upset to return to Quincy. He loved his home. He loved being back with Abigail in that home environment. But he wanted to continue politics, and he, I'm sure he wanted to continue to serve. So he was very upset. He was also in mourning about his son, Charles, who had died of alcohol abuse several months before. So he was really crushed by this. This was a son who was very much a black sheep, for want of another term. He had abandoned his family and children. Very troubled young man, died when he was 30. Difficult childhood. I think this was a child who needed his parents. This is the casualty of these great men who are so ambitious, who serve the country or whatever else they choose to do, go away from home, leave the children behind. The child who needs the parent, like I'm pretty sure Charles was that kind of child, feels abandoned and lost. And when the father that he needs so badly is gone, he's just adrift. I think if Adams had not been a politician, had not served so far from home, I have a feeling Charles maybe would have been okay, but he wasn't. And when he passed away, at a very young age, the family actually refused him burial in Quincy in the family graveyard. One of the brothers said that it's best that he be forgotten. They were completely ashamed of Charles. Adams had actually denounced him, saying, I'll never speak to him again, never did, called him a rake and a buck. Just a terrible family tragedy. So Adams wasn't in the best possible sort to pass the torch, so to speak, to his old friend, who wasn't really his friend anymore, who knew he had undermined him and done everything he could to build his own party at Adams's expense. So off he went back home and abandoned the inaugural. Washington had attended his inaugural. He certainly should have attended it. The only exculpatory would be that there was no really acknowledge protocol on what he should have done that I'm aware of. It was all kind of winging it. So he certainly should have done it and stayed and passed the torch and buried his negative feelings and given his blessing to the new president. Jefferson didn't do it, paid a high price for it, ruined his reputation. Some writers believe that this was fundamental to the destruction of the party itself, the Federalist Party. He tells Jefferson, too, that about his son, he writes him, doesn't he? And Jefferson doesn't write him back. So that's something that the public, I'm sure, wouldn't have known at the time. But that's something that also really made me think, Jefferson, gosh, how at least Abigail, he was so close with Abigail when they were over in Europe. And he was such a friend to the family, to everyone. He knew Charles, clearly. He had to know all the Adamses. And yet he doesn't even offer his condolences. And that made it so much more amazing when eventually they do reconcile. As I said, all of these things in agony and eloquence, you build towards them and you see them so far apart and then slowly, delicately, 
Benjamin Rush plays this key role in their reconciliation. And I wanted to ask about Benjamin Rush in this way, Dr. Benjamin Rush. You were talking about what we can learn from all of this and how we can be better people, basically, by learning how Jefferson and Adams put aside the way that they'd hurt each other and undermined each other. And so how does Dr. Rush do this without getting them both mad at him? which probably has happened to all of us at some time or another. You know, how does he try to really accomplish this diplomacy? By this point, they're old, they're sickly, they're angry, their careers are behind them, they've suffered many tragedies, Abigail Adams is dead already. How does Rush go about reconciling the two of them or sort of putting the bug in their ears that maybe that one or the other of them needs to break the ice here? Rush was friends, good friends, with both Jefferson and Adams. He was the only person really in that role between the two of them, other than maybe Elbridge Jerry, but in a much greater sense. He absolutely adored Adams. Adams had saved him. Rush had a financial catastrophe. He couldn't get a job. His reputation was falling as a physician. He was considered very argumentative and difficult, you know, following very much in the Adams tradition, who he acknowledged was his mentor in doing those things that he thought was right, regardless of the public reaction to doing those things, you know, facing any kind of negative wave against him, he would press on. And he did that and angered and upset a lot of people and ruined his reputation. Adams gave him a sinecure as the uh, treasury director in Philadelphia, saved him basically financially. Rush never forgot that. He even said, I hope my appreciation of you will go down the generations of my family for what you've done for me. Wow. So he felt indebted to Adams and just adored him. And he said, you're like the top of a mountain shining down upon a snowy landscape. Just thought he was brilliant. He loved Jefferson's politics. He was more Jeffersonian than he was a Federalist. So he has this strange kind of place between the two men, and both loved him and trusted him deeply. So he was able to approach Adams with his famous letter of his dream, you know, saying, I had a dream. I was talking to my son, and we talked about the future history of the United States, where the two presidents, Adams and Jefferson, became friends again. Hmm. Beautiful letter. Adams basically poo-pooed it, saying, ah, you know, I've got nothing to talk to him about. He's got nothing to talk to me about. Why would I want to start a new correspondence and I've got nothing to say? I've got nothing against Jefferson anyway. I never did, <laughs> which is not true. Diminishing his negativity. You know, I never was at war with him. I never had a fight with him. We just went our separate ways. It's just the way it is. But thanks very much anyway. So finally, there was an opening that he was able to approach whereby his constant letters going back and forth for about a year. He's on this campaign with Adams. Finally, there's a letter to Jefferson saying, you know, maybe you want to communicate with your old friend John Adams. And Jefferson basically had the same reaction. You know, I've got no issue with him. I, he's a great guy. I have no problem with him. Never had a real fight with him. I can't imagine what I would say to him. I don't want to bother him. So what happened then was Jefferson's friend, Edward Coles, goes to visit the Northeast and goes to Peacefield and sees Adams. They have a conversation about Jefferson. Adams says, this is after having been prepped by Rush for a year, Adams says to Coles, where Coles said, you know, when you left the presidency, when Jefferson was the president-elect, he didn't know 
when the proper time to come to your office was. He really struggled with when he should come to see you because he didn't want to hurt your feelings. He knew that you would be frustrated and upset. He didn't want to appear to be gloating over his victory over you. You may not have been aware of that. And Adam said, no, I, I had no idea. Jefferson had said to Coles that this is one of the chapter headings in the book. Jefferson says to Coles, when I came to see President Adams, he seemed to be in a very angry, upset mood. And I forget the exact term. And Adams in this conversation at Peacefield with Cole said, yeah, oh yeah, I was definitely in that kind of mood. He said that, did he? Yes, he did. And then whereupon Adams says, I need to tell you, I love Thomas Jefferson and I always have. Coles returns to Virginia, goes to Monticello, reports on this conversation, uses that phrase, whereupon Jefferson in a letter to Rush says, when I heard that phrase, that was enough for me. Let's start the correspondence up again. And that's where letters started to fly back and forth. And they did all the way up to the end. Really is a beautiful story. And I think anybody who is estranged, and we all have somebody in our lives that we're estranged from, it's as if they don't ever stop teaching us, the founding fathers. Not in the sense that in our lives, just, but they have so many different things, these two men, to teach us. They obviously were steeped in a classical education, but who would have thought that we'd be getting advice on being better people just in our personal lives, little things like being better friends from them. But we've come now right up to the perfect spot for the next question, which I wanted to ask you to paint the scene because you talked about how Adam says he has nothing to say to him. And he's sort of speaking there in language that I think people can read between the lines and saw Jefferson that, oh, I have no problem with that guy. The letter arrives, and one of the other limitations for Adams as far as letter writing is he's losing his sight. So, I mean, he's you know, he's an older man by this point, late 70s. So paint this scene for us when the first letter from Jefferson arrives, as you do in the book. So don't do all of it because we want people to pick up agony and eloquence. But just a little bit when that first letter arrives, it's such an electric moment in your book. So many years of estrangement. You Even though you know what happens, you're, you still want to jump on the page and say, open it, open it, open it, because it's this letter from Thomas Jefferson. How does Adams deal with it? What's the scene and what does he respond with? I think it's really important in a history to make it real and to make it flow and to bring these people as alive as we can as writers so that it's a pleasure for the reader to go through the book and feel like they're being dragged in by the throat to this story into the times of these folks' lives. So the idea that there's some suspense built, there's some novel qualities, it reads like a story, it doesn't have to be dry because it's not. So folks who write dry history, that ought to be some kind of crime. History <laughs> shouldn't be dry. It's got to be exciting. How can you make something like this boring? Like if I read a Civil War book about a battle or a famous general or Adams Jefferson, I'm like, Jim, thinking this is really so dry. That really makes me upset and angry because somebody who doesn't know about it yet, you know, maybe it's a review for me, they're going to get turned off. And I meet so many people who say they don't like history, and I haven't quite figured out why that is. But part of bringing history back to folks, especially readers, is make it interesting, make it exciting. And I try to do that opening up the book with this letter that comes in to uh, Adams' house at Peacefield. He's at breakfast. Adams had had a very unfortunate correspondence with a distant relative of his in Massachusetts named William Cunningham, a Federalist lawyer, a sycophant of Adams, 
distant relation starts a correspondence with him after Adams's retirement. This was a little bit, I think, into the beginning of the reestablishment of their friendship. This correspondence, Adams had said to Cunningham, I want this to be private. I don't want any of these letters to be published. I'll only speak to you from my heart if you promise not to share them with anybody. Of course, Cunningham says, I promise, and off they go. In this correspondence, Adams savages Alexander Hamilton, insults Thomas Jefferson again and again, constantly trashing political opponents, thinking he has the privacy of the post and the word of this distant relative, William Cunningham. Well, as time goes on, Cunningham becomes so offended by Adams's criticism of these men, specifically of Hamilton, who was dead in the duel with Burr several years before. Adams wasn't showing any kind of sympathy at all to Hamilton. Adams couldn't stand Hamilton, nor could Jefferson. So towards the end of this correspondence with Cunningham, he threatens Cunningham to publish the correspondence. And Adams was completely horrified and says, wait a minute, you gave me your word. I won't release you from your word. You're obligated to not publish. And finally, after some back and forth threatening letters from this Cunningham fellow to publish, he didn't. Then Cunningham soon after commits suicide. So it seems like there's a record of this fellow's descent into madness. I don't know if the correspondence was cause, but it seems in the fellow's tone that there's a degradation of his character, of his balance. He becomes unbalanced. It's very strange, unpleasant reading to read the full correspondence. So the son, the heir, is a Jackson supporter. This is later now, after the correspondence has been going on for a while, John Quincy Adams is running against Jackson. He has the correspondence, which is damning to John Adams, which he figures will then damage the son's chances at winning the presidency. The son publishes the correspondence without Adams's knowledge or permission. All of these savage insults that he had shared with the father are now out in public. Adams is terrified that Jefferson is going to see this for good cause, and that it will ruin their friendship. By this time, this is 1820s, mid-1820s, when it's published. So Adams is reasonably concerned that his most important friendship, which is with Jefferson, is now at risk. So he's waiting for a letter, having no idea what Jefferson will say or do. He's expecting the worst, not knowing what is going to come. He knew the insults that he had written that were now public that Jefferson would see. This letter comes in, is read by a grandchild at the breakfast table. By then, Adams could uh, hardly read, very advanced in age, mid to late 80s at this point. They open the letter and read the letter. Jefferson says, look, you had this correspondence with a friend that you believe was private. I wouldn't hold you accountable for any opinion that you would have that you shared in private. And of course, he'd had yeah, his, <laughs> Jefferson yeah. had his own problems with stolen correspondence or published private correspondences that he did not clear. So he was fully aware of it. And he said, don't worry about it. Essentially, let's continue our friendship and let's not let this sully our relationship. 
Adams's response was, this is the greatest letter that's ever been written, <laughs> and it should be published, but of course, with your permission. And it's important at the time, too, because not only is JQA running uh, Adams's son, but he's running against Jackson, who cast himself as a Jeffersonian. Jefferson wasn't too happy about that, didn't think that he was one of his guys or that he was didn't like his temperament, Jackson. He was uh, Maniac may be too strong a word to quote Paul Cahan when we did his book on the bank war. But uh, Jackson certainly was a ferocious guy, Was did not have Jefferson's temperament to at least scream and yell at you and threaten you behind your back. He did it right, right to your face, often in violent ways. So this really could have been damaging to Adams' son. And that was very much a piece of him reclaiming that legacy. Of course, he wanted to see his son, who was so accomplished, be able to win the presidency. And so I thought that was very generous of Jefferson. Jefferson may have had his own regrets because he knew what he had said that hadn't been published. So he would have been very much hypocritical of him. Maybe he was just thinking if he was going to hold Adams responsible for this, knowing he was really kind of underhanded in the way that he denies Adams a second term. I wanted to mention one other thing there and give you a chance to make your best pitch for people loving history because you told me when we started and you were very impassioned about it, everybody who loves history has at least one person in their life like this that they can't convince to understand why history is important and in the light of picking up agony and eloquence and learning how to just be better people and see sides of Adams and Jefferson we haven't seen before. Tell us what your pitch is to a friend or a person like that who doesn't get why history matters. One of the core tenets of the French Revolution was a complete break with the past, a new calendar, new currency, new government, new clothing, new religion, a total break because the past was about tyranny and monarchy and moral and ethical corruption. Therefore, it all had to be abandoned. Jefferson also believed that this concept was true, that we don't owe anything. There, we have no debt to the past. He believed that every living generation is the master of their lives, not indebted to any obligations of the past. He even believed that the Constitution should be revisited every 19 years so that it was fresh and alive for every generation. This is an interesting concept, and it's fully understandable from, from radical revolutionary perspective. Yes, you want to abandon monarchism. You want to abandon elites, which is why they hated the Federalists, which is why the Jeffersonian Republicans couldn't stand Adams or the entire party of Federalists and Hamilton, even Washington. They didn't want to see any elites being built. They wanted the government and authority to be with the people. So this idea of abandoning the past is great theoretically, but it's not true. We can't escape our past, nor should we entirely want to. We can abandon institutions. We should get rid of monarchism, totalitarianism, rigidity, reaction, these kinds of things we should abandon. But those people who came before us, we do have responsibility to them to at least know their story, to at least understand what they wanted to tell us. Jefferson and Adams both said that this correspondence of theirs, upon which my own book is based in large part, an analysis of that correspondence, they both said that it should be published. But they didn't say why? They never said why. I mean, how many volumes 
of work is available of Jefferson's writings and documents, probably 75 volumes, maybe 50 volumes for the works of Adams, documents, letters, diaries, just huge amount of documentation around both. They both knew this, but they wanted this correspondence in particular to see the light of day. And we didn't get it until the 1950s in full. So the lessons that they left for us in this correspondence really have been widely lost or unknown until now. And the lesson, I think, is really that core of Jefferson saying, it's okay, I can accept the fact that you and I don't agree. They came to a point later on where Jefferson, where he said in his first inaugural, we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans, and we need to have a decent society of political discourse in which we can have differing opinions and yet continue our friendships because this is foundational to a good functioning society and the democracy itself. If we can't disagree and retain positive associations with those that we don't agree with, the democracy will crack. So I think this correspondence of Adams and Jefferson, the fact that they came together, though they're so different and they were so far apart and they respected each other's intelligence, viewpoint, and value of the country. So the lesson here is I'm an American. I support the Constitution. I have a love of country. You're entitled to your opinion of Jeffersonian Republicanism. You're entitled to your opinion of federalism. We don't agree. We're still friends, and we're united by this common sense and appreciation of the country and the value of it and what we can bring to make it strong and survive because it's constantly under threat. So to me, this is a key important message, and that's why they wanted the correspondence to be published. And I think that is the lesson that needs to come back to all of us in these divisive, difficult times where the president has said the politics are broken. Well, they're not really broken. They work. It's supposed to be difficult. Jefferson said to Lafayette, we're not expected to go from tyranny to freedom on a feather bed. We don't get a feather bed. American democracy is not supposed to be fun. <laughs> it's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be challenging. Freedom is difficult. Everybody's got their own opinion, and that's great. But so long as we're united in these ideas, love of country, love of the union, and support for the Constitution, then we can retain, with a great deal of self-discipline, which a lot of folks don't seem to be able to show now, we have to have this again because we have to bring good associations back between opposing parties and opposing viewpoints back to the political culture that we have. And I wanted to get this message out into the society, especially now. When I started this project in 2009, 2010, I didn't know that the timing would be just right, that things would be even worse than they were then, but they are. This is an important message that I just kind of stumbled upon that I wanted to share with my fellow Americans to help support our strength and a happy political culture in our country where people are so frustrated and upset. I'd like to see some positivity return to our politics. It's okay to disagree with people. Yeah. It's okay to have a differing viewpoint, but since I'm a Republican or a Democrat, does that mean I have to hate the opposing party because they have a differing viewpoint? Does that mean they're my enemy? Absolutely not. 
this concept, which is now so popular that the opposition is the enemy, has got to be abandoned. And these people need to be embraced and say, look, we're united in these concepts. They even said so, and it's talked about in my book. If you support the union, the union must stand. That is our unity and togetherness and the union and the constitution. Let's talk about most anything else because it's all up in the air. Well, Dan Malik, thank you for coaxing Adams and Jefferson back into our lives here to give us this advice. And I don't like to give my personal opinion too much on the show. I like to talk about the books and the history. But the key thing I thought of there when you were talking about what we can learn about ourselves is, as they say in football, to point with the thumb and not the finger. And I think that's something we can learn here. Both Adams and Jefferson were pointing with the thumb at themselves and asking what they could improve. And, you know, how can we go out and embrace somebody and maybe reconcile things in our own lives with our own politics, try to hear people out a little bit more and be willing to be persuaded and try to persuade legitimately. I'm glad that you were able to go back and share so much of the self-exploration and the exploration of friendship that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson did together. Thank you for bringing them back to life for us. I hope people will go out and grab the book. And best of luck with Agony and Eloquence. Thank you, Dean. It's been a real pleasure to be on your show. And I really appreciate your excellent questions and real deep interest in the subject. Well, it's my pleasure to read Again, the book is Agony and Eloquence, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and a World of Revolution. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com, and we hope you will click through there, or even bookmark the URL off our homepage for all your Amazon purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost to your bottom line. Again, my sincere thanks to Dan Malik for joining us and for sharing an intimate portrait of friendship, falling out, and reconciliation that we can all hope to learn from in our own entangling alliances. Please remember to visit him at danielmalik.com for more on this defining friendship of America's founding generation. Again, that last name is spelled M-A-L-L-O-C-K. Oh, and are you going to be in the New England area this summer? Catch Bunker Hill Day, June 17th. Dan will speak about agony and eloquence at the Adams National Historic Park in Quincy, Massachusetts. I've been there, and I can tell you it's really worth the trip. It'll be a homecoming for the man who visited there so often as a neighborhood boy. And as Dan closes that circle, we hope some new doors open for him and his story of Adams and Jefferson. Thanks for spending some time with us here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave a review. I hope you'll join us in the middle of the week for Classical Wisdom Wednesday, presented by our friends at Classical Wisdom Weekly, and at the end of the week for History in Five Friday, brought to you by Simon & Schuster. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and happy reading.